And for the rest of you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. The blessing today, the hymn, um, He Leadeth Me. It's one of my favorite hymns from way, way back. He leadeth me, he leadeth me, by his own hand he leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be, for by his hand he leadeth me. And I would just tell you, beloved, the way that he does that is right there. That's how he's going to lead you to the extent that you are in the Word each day and you apply what you see and understand to your life and being conforming to those things. That is how he's going to lead you. It's a big blessing to know that he desires that very much. And as you pray that he leads you, you're praying along with him. He very much desires to do just that. Henry Heinz was um, born in 1844 to German immigrants in Pittsburgh, PA. He helped us support his family as a teenager by growing and selling vegetables in the family garden. After graduating from college and getting married, he started a business selling horseradish. In 1875, a national financial collapse drove the young company into bankruptcy. Despite the legal freedom bankruptcy gave him, Heinz regarded each of the company's outstanding debts as a moral obligation, and he personally paid back every penny. Heinz went on to establish the H.J. Heinz Company with its 57 varieties and became a leading American businessman. A devout Christian, he was known for the generous treatment of his employees and the generosity of the Christian causes. Throughout his life, Heinz conducted his business and personal dealings with the same integrity that led him to pay back hundreds of thousands of dollars he technically did not owe. He began his will and testament with these words, Quote, I desire to set forth at the very beginning of this will and testament as my most important item in it, a confession of my faith in Christ Jesus as my Savior. And it reminds me of, of Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1, where it says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver or gold. Last week we picked up in our study in verse 10, and and in the following passages, we began to see some practical management instructions in relationship to giving in the form of principles and commands. And we had set the stage for this chapter for quite some time. We, we uh, understood where everything comes from, how God supplies it to us, and the main ways that he does that. And then we moved right into chapter 8, verse 1, and we looked at the snapshot of, of New Testament giving, the example of New Testament giving, then as it began in verse, in verse 1. And then as we moved through, we got to verse 10, and we began to see some very practical instruction in the handling of uh, what comes in and the attitudes that need to be there. And, and we saw that that good name that we saw that is more desirable than great riches is exactly what we find when we get to 2 Corinthians verse 16, 8, 16, and, uh, and moving on through there. So look at 2 Corinthians 8, 16, if you would, because Paul... What he's going to do is put some character traits of those who handle the offering in the church, what they're to have, and he does it by the examples he uses from the people who are named as those who will manage what comes in. So look at verse 16, if you would. Uh, he says this, But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart. Here's the first example of a man who is qualified to do this and manage the offerings as they come in, in the heart of Titus, verse 17, for he not only accepted our appeal, it says, but himself being very earnest has gone to you of his own accord. And so Paul starts with Titus, and he says he served the church. You know, he didn't lead all the churches, of course, like the apostle Paul did. He wasn't an apostle. He was led to faith by Paul. Paul calls him his true son in the faith. He was very responsible. He was respected among the churches, and so Paul names him, and it's interesting that he comes into this passage after he's given all the attitudes that need to be in place and the structure inside the church and how it's supposed to be handled. Then he brings Titus into this conversation. The last time, we, as we closed out our time, we discovered perhaps why he brought Titus's name in. And uh, Paul knew that the church embraced Titus with respect. Paul uh, knew that the church knew he was a godly man. They followed his leadership. And so then when we read then in 2 Corinthians 8.16, in this context, we pulled our, our 11th principle about how to manage things that come in, and it's a plurality of leaders, helps to insulate the church from error, and should instill confidence. And that's the reason he brings Titus into the picture. So the idea is, you know, Paul is this 
desire to, uh, to bring a big offering to the church in Jerusalem. There's a lot of need there. And it's, he begins to bring Titus into the, into the conversation because it's, it would be easy for the Corinthian church to say, well, you know, Paul, you're a Jew and they're Jews and, you know, you're going to take this big offering and show up there with the offering and then everything's going to be okay between you and they. And, and that's not the issue and that wasn't the reason why Paul wanted to do it. And, and he had plenty of people who would uh, talk badly about him in the church. And so he brings this other elder in and Titus fulfilled this role for Paul along with some others. And now Titus accepted Paul's leadership, certainly, he didn't buck Paul, but the passage doesn't say, you know, I told Titus to come, and so he came to you. It says he, he got, he's gone of his own accord. And so there's this tremendous credibility when those who lead the church can affirm a decision or a budget or a project. So just more than just one person is saying, yes, this is what we should do. And that's why when you're leading, as I told you last time, you want to surround yourself with the most godly, the most mature, the most wise, the most knowledgeable, mark this, when it comes to the word of God, most faithful to act on it, what the Word of God says, that's who you want in your leadership that's managing what comes in. That's what you want anyway, uh, but uh, these people will know the mind of God, and the church will recognize this. And those are the types of questions you want to ask when, when you think about appeals for giving and budgets and all that kind of stuff. Who's overseeing this ministry inside the church? And outside appeals, as you think about all the outside appeals that come in, uh, for giving, it should have the same question. What kind of accountability is there? Who's managing this whole thing? And how do they handle the Word of God? These, these are crucial questions. Do they handle the Word of God with care? Or are they invested in ministry? All of that. And this is, uh, that's our first example. And then he goes right to the second example, verse 18. Look there. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches, verse 19. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work. And, and this is principle number 12. New Testament giving is managed with accountability. Here, the handling of the giving in the church or any other appeal for giving outside the church, there needs to be accountability. And we noted last time, we, we don't know who this is. Uh, he's not named. But in context, we don't have to know because apparently the church would have immediately known who Paul was referring to, and that's all that really has to be true. And they knew him, again, because he was well-regarded by all the churches. It says, a man who preached the good news, that's the gospel, so faithfully discharged the word of God in the churches widely, and so it's not just going to be Paul, and it won't just be Titus. Uh, it's also going to be another elder with an impeachable character and, and well-known and as faithful in the churches. And, and when we thought about those three guys, as we closed last time, it, it led us to our next principle, and that was principle 13. In the management of New Testament giving, it should always be the most trustworthy, the most qualified biblically, that's faithful elders and deacons, who are put in charge of the finances. And, and as an illustration, last time we saw from Acts chapter 6, verse 1, and you remember this, uh, as we saw early in, the, in, the, in, in Acts, the church grew very quickly, up to about 5,000 men, and so we know it was large, and a lot of need is there, and so Paul had recognized this need, and they had been meeting their own needs for a long time, and those who had things uh, discharged them and, and gave to the church so people could have needs met, and it wasn't, you know, Marxism where everybody's equal to, you know, everybody's down to nothing and, and nobody has anything. It wasn't that. It wasn't equaling out incomes and all that. It was just basically, if you had something, you had an asset and somebody had a need, and you realized that it all came from the Lord and you could discharge that asset and meet a need, and that was no big deal because you understood where everything comes from. And so that's this discharging of the finances, and it's always the most biblical, and, and because this became a huge issue in this early church, and people, it says, Barnabas sold a piece of property and they took the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet. Well, that was probably a lot, and he probably wasn't the only one doing it. So at some point, it gets overwhelming, and there needs to be some other people involved. And so what happened? Well, in Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, we see that um, some other people were brought in, and, and they, had to have, they provided some help. So under the direction of the apostles, they were instructed to, the church was instructed, verse 3 of chapter 6 of Acts says, select from among you, mark this, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. And this is a precursor to deacons. Now, I'll just tell you that one of the guys that was appointed, Nicholas, he caused a lot of trouble in the church later, and Paul had to tell the church to watch out for him and put him out. So not everybody holds the course. But at this point, as they evaluated these guys' characters, these were the guys who came in. And so they, they take over this administration in serving those who have need, and Paul confirms this official role in his pastoral letters, calling them deacons, and that is the name for servant or table waiter. And that's precisely what they were doing. Seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, and they're in charge then of using these types of offerings to meet the needs of widows and those without enough to survive. But it wasn't the people who were most popular. It wasn't the people who'd been there the longest. It wasn't guys who had a business, so you must be good at this. And all. It didn't have anything to do with that. It had guys of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom. See, 
And the passages that Paul used to confirm what they should look like are found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, which show us then objectively what these types of men are to be like in their qualifications. And so as I told you last week, by way of illustration and just as a footnote, if you will, to help kind of undergird what we've been talking about, we're going to look at these passages just briefly. So turn, if you would, hold your finger here. We'll be back. 1 Timothy chapter 3, look there if you would. Now, I'm not going to break down these things as I will when we study them. I'd like to perhaps go here to the, the pastoral epistles after we finish 2 Corinthians. We'll see how, how that looks, but um, we'll do that at a later date and break them down extensively. What I want to do here is just read them and make some comments on these qualifications because this is not just whatever works and whoever is, looks good, that's the person we're going to put in. These are the, this is what it looks like uh, in, in uh, Paul's instruction, and then later in Titus, he gives instruction to Titus in the letter that he writes to him about what this is going to look like, and I think you'll find it enriching as we just kind of make, take a few moments to look at it. So look at 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1. So he says this, verse 1, it says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. So these are two different words, aspire and desire. Aspire has to do with outside actions. So in other words, he realizes there's some qualifications. He's aspiring to those qualifications. And then the other one has to do with the inner motivation. So perhaps he feels the Lord is drawing him into this position and he wants to do it. And it's his desire very much to be involved, to minister to the church. So two different things there. And it's important. We won't break them down at length, but just realize two different words. Then verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach. So talking about an elder, a presbyter, somebody who is overseeing the ministries of the church, here particularly an elder. He must be above reproach, and that word is sometimes translated blameless. Literally, it means unable to be called out. So in other words, there's no flagrant, overt sin that's at issue in the person's life. If he desires and aspires to the position, there can't be any overt sin, something that would allow him to be called out on it and embarrass both himself and the church. And then the passage goes on with what that looks like. So it begins to list things where there can't be any, any part that he can be called out on. He says, number one, he says, the husband of one wife. Now, this word is not the word for never divorced, okay? Uh, marriage and family are going to be dealt with in just a moment. Uh, this word indicates it is an idiom, one woman, man, okay? So, and it doesn't mean one woman at a time. It doesn't mean not polygamy because polygamy wasn't part of the New Testament uh, anyway in what was going on in the church. It just means, the idea is, it's just a singular devotion and affection in purity. So you're not a player. You don't have a wandering eye. You're committed to your wife. It's obvious that you are, and she is the one who's in your eyes. That's the idea. Okay, so one woman, man, and then it says this, you can't be called out in that. And, that and, and beloved, as we just think about that, if there's any place where elders get in trouble on a regular basis, what is it? It's with that, right? It's affairs that go on. It's things that happen in, in offices and places that shouldn't be happening. And that disqualifies you because you can be called out on that, okay? So this is the first one that Paul lists, unable to be called out. Make sure you're the husband of one wife, a one woman man. And then temperate, nephileo, that's an adjective. It's a word actually for sober, it means um, wineless. It's a synonym for clear-minded. So, in other words, not under the influence of anything. So, a very clear word, and there's going to be a couple words that are going to refer to that, because, again, this is a number, uh, place where people get in trouble very quickly. Prudent, sophrona, it has to do with uh, being self-controlled, respectable. Cosmios, that's the adjective that really has to do with the Greek word cosmos, which is the ordered nature of the stars. But the idea here is, he's just saying, listen, he's... Um, uh, he's uh, self-controlled. There's a control to his life, and it's obvious. And then uh, respectable, uh, we saw that respectable, that's uh, the ordering, uh, has to do with the elder's ability to order his life. And then hospitable, literally, uh, has to do with the love of strangers. So those who want to serve have to be uh, given to entertaining of strangers in their home. Uh, they go out of their way to make sure people who they don't know feel welcome. So that has to be part of their character. And then this, able to teach, look there if you would. So that's related to giftedness. That's how the gift should function in the church. So if you want to, if you aspire to and desire to be an elder, you have to be able to teach. And that's not just talking about just being a teacher. It's the spiritual gift that allows you to connect the Word of God to people's lives and, and bring about change. And that's the Holy Spirit only does that, but he does that through that giftedness. But there has to be a giftedness uh, that the elder would have. So if you're going to serve, it has to be able to teach. And then uh, that's how it should function in the church. And the Holy Spirit uses that type of gift to disseminate the Word of God for doctrine. And we saw this before in, in, in uh, 
reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. So it's all going on then with the teaching. And then verse 3, not addicted to wine. So we're going back there again. Para oinon. Para, it's a compound word. Para is beside and oinos is wine. So it has to be where you're found, the idea of where you're found. So it's more than a prohibition on drunkenness, which we already know if you, if you drink and it affects you and the way that you function or think, you're already in sin. But this has to do with uh, typical actions. Is he known as a drinker? That's the question. If the, if the answer is yes, he's known as a drinker, then he's not qualified to serve as an elder. So regardless of what you may think about that and personally and what you think uh, with, your, uh, with your freedom in Christ you can do, if you want to aspire to the office of elder, it can't be part of your life. And then, or pugnacious, that's literally not a giver of blows. So he doesn't, the first thing he's not thinking about is how to strike someone, obviously. And then connected to that, it's but gentle, epicase, the Greek adjective. On the backside of not pugnacious, it really refers to uh, dealing with people in a reasonable manner, okay? A quick to pardon and then peaceable, it's also on the back end of not pugnacious, just means reluctant to disagree or fight. Now, beloved, don't confuse that with not agreeing with everything somebody says. Don't, 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 don't confuse that with if somebody's out of line that the pastor or the overseer has to deal with it. That doesn't mean that you don't deal with it, okay? It just means in general you, you're reluctant to disagree or fight with someone. And then free from the love of money. And that is just without covetousness. And, and that certainly can be translated not a lover of money, and that goes very well with, with the qualifications concerning those who are in charge of this offering that's championed by Paul. Obviously, you want them to be free from the love of money. That applies to everyone, but certainly those who work as an overseer. And that character should be free from the love of money. If you're going with this large offering over a year's time in multiple churches, you want to make sure that whoever's managing that has that as a character trait. And then verse 4, look there, he must be one who manages his own household well. So his whole household and certainly his wife and children are ordered. And in just a minute, we're, we're going to see that this is used as an illustration of an ability to lead the church. So, so then it must include leading children to faith and loving a wife selflessly uh, and building her up so she can do the tasks that God has for her in joy. And this is also where, whether there's been a divorce, okay? Because not all divorces prohibit remarriage. We know that the Bible already assumes remarriage when you divorce, so it just gives you the parameters around it. And so some, some divorces allow remarriage, so it can't be that. But a divorce may indicate an inability to manage a household. So it might not be your fault that your wife left, but if she left, it indicates an inability to manage a household. And so uh, someone desiring to serve as an elder with that in their background, then, uh, it would have to be so far back that uh, maybe before salvation or even after, but it would have to be so far back that there would be a track record since then of a long track record of managing well, uh, and, and then this, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And this has much to do with obedient children. And we talk about this a lot because this is very important. It's very important for those in elder and deacon positions. And unfortunately, over the years, I've had to ask people to step down because their children are out of control. And, and one of the things that's so sorrowful for me is to see guys continuing in the ministry when their children do not walk with the Lord because this disqualifies you from it. But here, here it's very clear. And this is dealing with younger children. They're in view here. In Titus 1, we're going to see older children. We'll see it in just a minute. But keeping his children under control with all dignity so this has to do with obedient children, and, and it's their pattern of life. That here, for the first time, obedience is what we're talking about. So you say for them to do something, and they do it, okay? That, this is um, the, the, word, the, used, the word that they use is under control, the Greek noun, hupotage, which we, we know the verb hupokuo, bringing up under. And so the idea here is this, to be brought up under the authority and then qualifies it with a noun, simotetos, which is, which is um, with all respect and reverence. So the idea is, not only do they have to obey you, they have to do it with all respect and reverence. And as we told you before, you know, that's precisely what it says in Ephesians. So if your child doesn't obey, you have to teach them to respect and obey. It has to do with attitude, and it has to do with action. And if your child violates either of those things, then they get a spanking. That's how that works. And, of course, in love and administered in a way that you're self-controlled and all of that. We don't have time to go in that, but I've told you, taught you that many times before. But here it's very important. If somebody wants to serve in the office of elder, his children have to be brought up under his authority with all respect and reverence. So on the other side, it isn't the yelling and the screaming and the willfulness allowed with children in many homes because that does not align with what we see for an elder, nor does it align with what we see in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. So the guy who aspires to an elder has to do it biblically. And then verse 5, look there, and then we see why. 
Why does, why does your wife have to be loved in such a way that she can be built up and you're selfless enough to allow her to do the things that she can do inside her spiritual giftedness? And why do your children have to be in obedience under you with respect and reverence? But if a man, here it is, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? In other words, if he can't lead his own kids to faith and teach them to obey out of love and respect and reverence, submitting to him, and if he can't lead his wife to sanctification and loveliness and a greater ministry, then why would we think he could lead the church in faith and ministry? That's the idea, okay? And so, th- th- this is very clear, not my words, it's just, this is what Paul knows, what Timothy knows, what Titus knows, is what the church knows. So when he says, and when he indicates someone is qualified as an elder to do these kinds of things, they've already come up under these, these qualifications, Okay? You're not just picking the nicest guy, the one that's been there the longest, okay? Or maybe, you know, that may be fit for him to do. We need to get him involved. Let's plug him in there. That doesn't have anything to do with it, okay? So that's the sense of it. He can't lead the church if he can't do these things. Now, look at verse 6. And not a new convert, so not newly born again, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation occurred by the devil. The idea is the devil was elevated to the, the, uh, the prime position and immediately got prideful. You don't want a guy that's brand new in, the, in, uh, in his faith uh, serving as your minister. He's going to have to have some lifetime behind him as a, as a believer so that you can see that his life has come into alignment. It just makes sense, doesn't it? But uh, here it just makes clear it can't be a new believer, a new convert. And in the early church, there were a lot of new converts, were there not? And so you have a lot of people who are new, and so there's got to be some qualifications there in place and some time and some seasoning going on. As Titus has told, you know, appoint elders, he's got to know who those guys are and be able to identify them. So it's not a new convert, verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. So in other words, an impeachable character among the unredeemed. So he, can, he should be a good neighbor. He sh- his dealings with the community should be upright. You know, he pays his bills on time. He walks circumspectly. You know, there's all kinds of things that need to be right because the world is watching. You know, he shouldn't be out gambling. He shouldn't be do- doing a bunch of things that the world's going to say, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what that's supposed to look like. If the world thinks that that's not what it's supposed to look like, then it can't look like that. And whatever your, whatever your, uh, your idea of a strong believer is has to be in submission to those who are weaker and, and that's very clear all through the scripture, but uh, again, we just have that understanding here. And so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So he gets himself in trouble with the community, and then he, there's, there perhaps is a snare there. Satan is roaming around like a lion, seeking to someone to devour in their sin. And that happens often when, when uh, men in the, in the ministry don't rein their life in. And, and there's, then there's tons of reproach, not only on him, but on the church. And, and, and trust me, beloved, you know, when, when, when the unredeemed look at somebody in the ministry that's fallen, Okay, they're not disgusted. In fact, whatever the guy in the ministry did, they probably agree with. Okay, I mean, they like that, whatever kind of uh, perversion or whatever it was that happened. What, they, what they're uh, uh, ridiculing you about is that you said you were different, but you really weren't. You were just like me. See? So you want to make sure that there's no snare, no reproach. So that's, that's what the position's supposed to look like. And in all these verbs, they're all present active or present middle, indicative or infinitive. So that just means that what is the case now? What's going in now? So Paul isn't just picking, you know, a nice guy to serve in this manner. You know, and then Paul moves right into the office of deacon. So let's keep right on going. Verse 8. Likewise, uh, the, uh, the Greek word, hausotes, which just means as the same as we've been talking. The, I, the, the, the actual literal translation is, has to do with a contrary wind pushing you back. So the idea there is in sailing, you got a contrary wind and you're shoved back to where you were before. That's the exact idea here. So just like with an elder, I want you to remember, Paul says, that. The same ground we've already covered, we're going to cover that again, so there's much stuff that's going to overlap. So he says, deacons likewise must be men uh, of dignity. So the thoughtful character, uh, not offhanded about important things. If you're going to serve in the office of deacon, you've got to be that way. Not only that, but the other things you talked about with elder, uh, with the exception of being apt to teach, has to apply as well. And you're going to see some of them overlapping here. Uh, not double-tongued, you see that? It says, so that's saying one thing to one person and something else to another. Or addicted to much wine, that's the idea of continually giving yourself to it, or literally found in the way of drink as a habit. And it says, or fond of sordid gain. So, in other words, money from a dubious source. So the deacon has to have a respectable income, uh, a way of earning a respectable income. And again, we see how important that character trait is in the habits of the men Paul is appointing to this position or who are coming on board and saying, I agree with this, let's do it. They, they have to be men that are not uh, fond of sort of gain because you don't want to hand a huge offering to people who have a problem managing money. 
uh, verse 9, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So those who serve as deacon, in other words, that's sound doctrine of the gospel. Uh, before, that's the mystery, that's hidden, but now revealed. So the gospel was hidden, but now it's revealed in Christ. Uh, is, that's what they hold on to, and, and they actively share this, because it's not just the correct position doctrinally that they know on the incarnation of life and death and burial and resurrection as it relates to the profession of faith. It's not just that. It, it's holding it. That's wearing it or embracing it. That's the word that resonates in the inner man. So they have to be discharging the gospel. It's something that as a deacon does, he's embraced the gospel as a lifestyle, and it's part of his interaction with people he, inter- he goes around with. Verse 10, these men also must first be tested, mark this, and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Again, what's the word? Unable to be called out. So you're watching them then, and these things that we talked about as an elder, they have to be true in their life, and you're taking some time to observe them. And the way I like to do it is, you know, this is kind of how it looks to me as, as we apply these things. If the man is serving already, watch and see what that looks like. Is it with diligence? Is it with fervency? Is it with selflessness? Is it with sacrifice? And, and, and if, if he's demonstrating those things over and over again in his service, along with the other character things we see have to be in place, then put him in the official office. Because the deacon in itself is not your ministry. The deacon just recognizes that you're already doing the ministry of what? Of serving the church. That's why in, in the New Testament, we don't see a job directly given to the deacons. Specifically, we see in Acts 6 that they discharge that offering to make sure everybody gets covered. But that's not the only thing they're doing. And, and so we don't see, hey, you've got to be apt to teach. You've got to be. It's just whatever, whatever serves the church. However a table waiter can serve the church, that's how he does it. So you see men who are already doing that, and they are not doing that because you prompted them to. They've found a place to serve. They're very faithful doing it, and they're discharging it over and over again in a selfless manner. That's the kind of guy you say, hey, that is a great, that's a great candidate for someone who needs to be in the position of deacon. Now, I will say to this to you, um, and I'll, in just a minute, we're going to see something about this. Um, but so... In, in our church, in our bylaws, it says that we have to change deacons every two years. Well, I will tell you that that's an unbiblical position. And here's why I say that. And we're going to see this in just a minute. Because if he's going to be tested over time, and he's going to, as he discharges his ministry over time, he, he, he gets a, a great standing before the Lord and before men. How can he possibly do that if you're constantly switching guys in and out? But if you have a faithful guy, you leave him in there, and he discharges it. And if he disqualifies himself, then he's asked to step down, just like you would with an elder. But otherwise, you just keep doing it, because you just get better at it, at serving the church as you do it. You start becoming more aware of the needs, and you start thinking, hey, I need to call that person. I didn't see him. And, you know, hey, we need this right here. I'll, I'll show up on, on the weekend to make sure that's done. That's what a deacon, a servant of the church, looks like. See, Now, look at verse 11. We'll get to that in just a minute, but it just came to my mind that I maybe should mention that. It says, women must likewise, again, same word, contrary wind, blowing you back where you were before, so you see some of these character traits that have to be in place, must be, likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things, uh, because Paul again uses that word likewise, uh, because he's probably referring to, and we don't have them here, but I've had them in other churches, two other ones, uh, the official office of deaconess. Now, this is not speaking about deacons' wives, because he didn't speak about elders' wives, he's just talking about women who have this, uh, these qualifications, they're faithful, they're diligent, and they may have some ministry that they're doing. You can recognize them. These are faithful women who are doing this ministry. And so that's what it's talking about. If you have women who are serving in the office of deaconess, then they have to have these character traits as well, and they have to establish them over time. And then it says, back to deacons, it says, deacons must be husbands of only one wife. Again, that same idea, one woman man has to do with singular devotion and in affection and purity. So he's not, he doesn't have a wandering eye, he's faithful to his wife, and everybody knows it. And, and uh, good managers, protistamenoi, that, that's the idea, that's a Greek verb, to stand above. And, and I think what's being expressed here is just, as we saw with the elders, with his whole household, and certainly with his wife and his children, and they're ordered. And he leads his children to faith, and they are obedient, and we will see in Titus, as it deals with older children, there are marks to watch for that you actually did this. Uh, so they stand over as a servant leader. Again, as you're leading your family, men, we, we say, in general, men, you are servant leaders. You, you minister self-sacrificially to your wife and your children, but you also lead them in a godly manner. Both of those things are true. And then we see this. 
Uh, so they are good managers of their children and of their households. Verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons, here it is, obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So they serve well. Over time, they begin to have this very high standard, uh, high standing before the church. The church recognizes these are really men of integrity, and look how hard they work all the time. These are guys that are coming in and just giving of their time and making it happen. And then it also says... Um, high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So the Lord regards this position as very important and sticking with this office and meeting its requirements brings a lot of regard from God and from the church, which is exactly what we see in our current passage. They notice that the three men were like this and it was obvious. So it wasn't a big deal when Paul says, hey, these guys are coming along. The church is like, yeah, that's no problem. We have a long history of faithfulness that's, that's there. So they weren't picked because they were well-known. They weren't picked because they'd been there a long time. Uh, not because, and, and mark this, not because they kowtowed to every personal expectation of everybody in the church, okay? The office of elder and the office of deacon is not subservient to the personal preferences of the people in the church. Do you understand that? So in other words, the job that they're doing is not rated on whether or not everybody thinks they're terrific. The job that they're doing is rated on whether or not they qualify in these senses. And if they do qualify, then they are, they are appointed and worthy of you obeying and following what they say because this is the place that God has said they have to be in. So it's very important to remember that. Now, I want you to look, if you would, turn to Titus chapter 1, verse 5. And we're just going to see this just briefly. Uh, we're going to see the same thing, as, as a little bit more brief in nature, and, and some of it's duplicate, so I won't continue to go over it with you. Similar wording that we've already seen. And this is very important because what we see here is on the heels of, of Titus, or, or Paul giving Titus instruction about what to do as he left him in Crete. So watch in verse 5. It says, Paul says to him, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now, just stop right there because that's important. There was apparently uh, some other conversation that occurred that Paul's referring to, right? I mean, he said, I directed you to do this, and we only have this follow-up letter, so obviously there was some kind of personal conversation that went on. Here's what I want you to do when you're in Crete. And so he says, I want you to appoint elders in every city and set in order what remains. So he's very respected, and he knows the church will respect him. Why? Because he's come into these qualifications as an elder, so the church is going to submit to him. That's just, it just goes without, it's just redundant, okay? So verse 6 so he's saying, I want you to set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, so is he talking about the elder, namely, if any man is above reproach. That's the same word we saw in 1 Timothy 3, not able to be called out. So as an elder, you can't be called out, okay? And then it says the husband of one wife, again, same phrase, one woman, man, devotion, affection, purity, that's, part of, that's how you live and you're committed to your wife, having children who believe. Now we have a change because... He's still addressing children, but now they're older and they've come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, they've moved from a faith that's acceptable to you to a faith that's acceptable to the Lord. And that's what you want to do as you raise your children. You bring them under subjection to you and you uh, create a, a, an atmosphere where they are obeying you in first-time obedience and submitting to you in love. And then they're in perfect position to come to faith in Christ and walk in that way and affirm that relationship on their own. That's where you want to get, okay? So you have this... Yeah, this idea, you have to have children who believe. And, and then it says of the children, look there, not accused of dissipation. And interestingly enough, uh, as you, if you didn't think we were talking about older children before, you're obviously talking about older children now because that is the compound noun, asotia. It's translated riotous living. Actually, all over the New Testament, we see it in numerous places, riotous living. And so you can't imagine a four-year-old in riotous living, okay? I mean, that's, we're not talking about somebody in your own house, you know, running around rioting in your kitchen. What we're talking about is people who are adults now, and they are in riotous living. So you can't serve as an elder and then have a child who, mark this, does whatever he or she wants to do with no regard to propriety or law. That's the idea. You can't serve as an elder or a deacon if your older child has made their choice to live like they want to live apart from what's pleasing to God. And again, they're adults and they may choose to do what they want to do, but it still disqualifies you, okay? And so this is, this is violated often in the ministry. Ministers who are in positions of authority and eldership in churches with their children living in dissipation. 
doing whatever they wanted to do, not bringing themselves up under anything, see? And, and we're going to see that. So they, they're living in dissipation and then or rebellion. So this is, this is a compound adjective. Anopatakos. An is the negative particle. And then hupotasso is to come up under. So the intent of the Holy Spirit here is this. If your child won't be, mark this, brought up under anyone's authority, particularly the authority of the Word of God, then you can't serve as a deacon or an elder. In general, as an overseer, you can't do it. So older children, if they didn't walk, if they're not walking with the Lord, you can't be in that position. And that's precisely what the next verse says. Look at verse 7. For the overseer must be, here it is, above reproach, so not able to be called out either in his personal life or in the lives, now we see, of his older children as God's steward, and that's the word episcopon. So that's a very general term for church leader. So the idea of someone who's in position to care for the flock and direct its activities. So any of those activities, it could be, it could be a, a senior adult minister, it could be someone who ministers to youth groups, somebody who serves uh, as your worship leader, it could be any of those, you, you qualify as episcopon, that's the general term for church leader, it's someone who is in a position to care for the flock and direct its activities. If, if that's your position, then these are your qualifications. So, and then it says, not self-willed. So God's steward is not self-willed. So, athotes, that's, once again, a compound word. Second half of the word has to do with, hed- it's hedone, which is where we get our English word, hedonism. So, in other words, the elder isn't supposed to do just whatever pleases him. That's, the, that's basically hedonism. You do whatever you feel like doing, and you can't be an elder or a leader or episcopal if you are like that. And then it says, uh, not quick-tempered. That's the word for given anger as an overriding reaction. Uh, or... It says, uh, addic- not addicted to wine. Again, same word, paranoion, para beside an oinos wine has to do with where you're found, like just like we saw before. So is he known as a drinker? If the answer is yes, then you can't be, you can't serve in a position of episcopon. Or pugnacious, not, again, not a giver of blows, nor fond of sordid gains, same thing we saw, character of deacons, character of elders, money from dubious sources. He has to, re- has to have a respectable uh, earning income. Uh, they're a hard worker, not a schemer. Verse 8, Hospitable, so showing love to strangers. Again, same thing, loving what's good, sensible, just, about, self-controlled. All the same kinds of things we just saw a few minutes ago. We don't have to go over them again. They're very clear. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word. So, in other words, uh, for an elder, for Episcopal, a high view of the Scriptures. Uh, the ministry of teaching is at the center of his efforts. So, as he serves in the church, as an elder, he has to have a high view of Scripture and the ministry of teaching the Scripture is in the center of his, ex, uh, his efforts. Now, there's lots of guys who, who say they serve as an elder, and if they had a cold, the text of the Bible would never have caught it because there's not enough connection with what they say and what the Bible actually says, okay? So I'm talking about real teaching the Bible. Everybody says they teach the Bible. Not everybody does, and you can easily see what that looks like. Go verse by verse. You're teaching the Bible. You teach what you want to do and use the Bible as a, as a proof text. That's not teaching the Bible. That's using the Bible, all right? That's not the same. So, again, very clear. Um, Holding fast the word of God. It's very important. The faithful word, which is that it says in accordance with the teaching. So he's able uh, to stand really in the stream of that solid uh, doctrinal interpretation so that he'll be able to both exhort, parakaleo, present active infinitive. So come alongside someone and disciple them constantly. So it's a constant, you're in the word and you get this opportunity either corporately or personally to be uh, discipling someone. And then, um, uh, to continually do this, and then in sound doctrine, it says, so you're continuing on the word, in sound doctrine, to refute those who contradict. So there's this disciple kind of ministry, there's this discipline kind of ministry too, which means that you're, you know, you are coming along and you're encouraging people, and also, you know, when people aren't right or they weren't doing what's right, you still got to deal with that. Both of those things inside the ministry of the word. So that's what it looks like. And you can see, these are not just marginal issues. And when Paul writes to the Corinthian church to encourage them to follow through with their giving, he says that Titus is on board, and you know him, and he qualifies in this respect. And only that, look at verse 18, we've sent along with him the brother whose fame, look back at 2 Corinthians 8, 18, whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, he's also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work. And our passage then continues to affirm that in the New Testament, in free will giving, you want administration and accountability with those who are most wise, 
about the scriptures and they read it and they're doing it and it's obvious in their family and they're faithful and they're godly and mature and they're knowledgeable men who discharge the work of the gospel faithfully and they're qualified as an overseer. These are the kinds of people, if those are the character traits, you don't have to worry about problems. Paul says, we didn't choose this guy and the churches didn't recognize any of these guys because they were most popular, because they owned a business, because they'd been there a long time, you know, because they were good with finances or because they were well off or they were an accountant or whatever. That wasn't the qualifications. He was chosen because he was biblically qualified as a leader in the church. And now we understand what that looks like. And when that's the case, see, you not only have the Holy Spirit at work guiding these men, you have protection from false accusation. And it's not because we don't trust people, see? It's because we don't want to allow our adversary, the devil, to be able to falsely accuse because we're aware of his schemes. And we don't want those who discredit the faith and the gospel to be able to find fault and destroy what the Lord wants to build, see? And so we've got to make sure the people who are in place uh, meet these qualifications. And that should apply to every type of appeal of giving that you see. Because there's nothing more, there's nothing more discouraging than to give sacrificially somewhere and then find that it was just misused and like 10% got to the, the place you wanted it to go and the rest was just a bunch of overhead and building personal kingdoms and stuff. Listen, you can avoid all of that, okay, in going through the church and your giving or being very discerning as you go outside and do a parachurch type of giving. Now look at verse 19, if you would. So you're doing all of that why are you doing that? Well, here's some, here's some uh, motivation. Look at verse 19. Which is being administered by us, mark it, for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness. So next principle, principle 14, if you're taking notes, you'll find them on the back of your bulletin. In the management of New Testament giving, the process of handling money is for, here it is, the glory of Christ. Paul didn't want any criticism to fall on Jesus by misconstruing how things were done. So he's very clear. And he didn't want any reproach to fall on Jesus' name by mishandling what was given. And we see that happening all the time. And that's such a grief, isn't it? And he didn't want any accusation to be able to stand. And then principle 15 goes along with it. In the management of New Testament giving, the process of handling money is for the glory of Christ. And, you know, and I'll just say as a side note, not everything that happens in the church is for the glory of Christ. We may say we want to do this for the glory of Christ. But to the extent that it makes Christ's attributes visible, it is for the glory of Christ. So you're not going to do something for the glory of Christ and then have a crummy attitude. You're not bringing unforgiveness into the church and saying, I'm doing everything for the glory of Christ. Because you're not. Nor are you building with gold and silver and costly stones. You're building with wood, hay, and stubble. So let's be clear. Not everything is for the glory of Christ. But Paul's setting this up so it can be. And then verse 15, it says, and to show a desire to meet needs. And like I said before, nothing will undermine uh, this. When, you, when your ministry says we want to meet needs, nothing undermines that with people who sacrificially give to underscore it and then find out that you didn't really give it to the thing you said you were going to give it to and that it, hardly any of it made it to the field. You really know that they really didn't desire to meet needs. They might have presented a need to you, but it really wasn't their desire to meet that need. It was their, their desire to enrich themselves, and you want to avoid that. Because he says, it's for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness. We want to meet needs, and so we're going to handle it this way so you know that this is our in intense desire. Paul says, we want to show by managing things this way, our sole desire is to use the money as we said it was going to go and in the way we expressed to you that it would be used. Now listen, we are so used to this love of money permeating everything. We just have a critical view of everything. Maybe you're struggling with that. I get that, Okay. I get that. I said it a couple weeks ago. Anytime you teach these passages, you're guilty by association with charlatans. It doesn't stop us from teaching the passage, but I get that it's hard to hear. And we see it all the time. The love of money is everywhere, right? It's, it's the source of all kinds of evil, pierce themselves through with many griefs. That's what uh, Paul said to Timothy. You know, for example, and it's just come out just recently, Joe Biden enriching himself and his son at the expense of the taxpayers in billions of dollars, selling out the U.S. to China for money, you know, Hillary Clinton selling out our country for personal profit. You know, the misuse and fraud. Here's the one that's most recent. The payroll protection plan, you know, that all that money came in from COVID to, to, uh, to spark the economy. And then businesses are taking it in and they're fraudulent about it. And they're taking in millions of dollars, not using it for, for payroll for their, for their people. They're just using it for themselves. So we see that all over, right? Robbery, embezzlement, scandal. So Paul wants to avoid all of that, see? Not even a hint of that. Not able to be called out, see? So he sets up a process that he has put in place to prevent it. And that's his exact statement of verse 20. He says, taking precaution, he says, so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. 
I'm not going to discredit you for giving. It's the way we managed it. That's the problem. He's already dealt with how you should give it and what attitude you should bring and how you should evaluate it and in proportion. He's already taken care of all that. Now he's doing on the other end how we're going to manage it. See, I don't want anybody to discredit us because we administered this badly. And it wasn't just that the elders couldn't be trusted. You know, it's, it's, the, it's this, you know, it's the First Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from every appearance of evil. I, you know, I, I started pastoring a church a number of years ago. Come to find out, you know, one of the deacons, he would take the offering home every Sunday and count it and then take it to the bank. And when I, of course, you know, I'm like a bull in a china closet. I'm, I'm like, what? You know, what are you talking about? Well, he's been here a long time. He's very trustful. I'm sure he is. And the problem is, there's a whole bunch of opportunity for the discrediting of the giving and discouraging of the flock, and there's all kinds of appearances of evil going on here, okay? And if something's missing, who's going to get blamed? Do you want him to be blamed? This guy was like 70. Do you really want to put all that pressure on him? This is not the way we do that, okay? We have to change that completely. So it's not, it's not so far-stretched. I mean, it happens at churches all around the country, and this is managed very badly, and this is not what should be done. And it's not like it's a secret how it's supposed to be handled. Paul's very clear. So and it wasn't even that Paul and Titus couldn't be trusted. Can you imagine? Not, you know, I don't trust you, Paul. I mean, that's what the First Corinthian church, would, that's the Corinthian church would say. But I mean, seriously, Paul's enemies are common enemy. They can't be trusted, see? So why go to all this trouble? Well, for the glory of Christ, to show our true desire to meet needs. And then verse 21, for we have regard, he said, we have regard for what's honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. That's another very good reason, isn't it? It's important what people think. They're the ones we're trying to teach, and they're the ones we're trying to reach. And principle 16, in the management of New Testament giving, the process of handling money is part of a good testimony in the church. And that's important. You want what's beyond accusation and suspicion before God and before men. And again, we have, we've seen him do it before. Paul calls on God as his active witness. You know, he says, you know, not only in the sight of the Lord, you know, before him, we're blameless, and we're doing this in a blameless manner, not only before him, and, and it relates to his heart, you know, when it concerns money, we have to do what's right before men as well. And in Romans 12, 17, Paul gives the mark of the Holy Spirit's control. He says this, he, you know, what men think is important, as you are controlled by the Holy Spirit in, in uh, the community around you, it says, never pay back evil for evil, e evil to anyone, and then respect what's right in the sight of all men. See? And so not only does the elder have to have a good testimony in the community, as we live our life, we have to have a good testimony in the community before all men. As they watch you, if they think you should be doing something as a believer and you're not doing it, you're in sin, they're not the problem, okay? What they think and what a weaker person thinks about what you're doing, that is the issue. So when you think about this and you look, you know, Respect what's right in the sight of all, all men, see? And that principle is not, it is not secluded just to the New Testament. It's all through the Old Testament, too. This is one of the, uh, the many passages that talk, talk to men or talk to sons that I had my uh, boys when they were young memorize. But Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1 says, it says, My son, do not forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. Verse 2, for length of days and years of life and peace they'll add to you. You tell your sons, you know, don't forget what I'm teaching you about the Word of God here. Don't forget the wisdom I'm giving you. Um, why? For it's going to add length to it. You want a long life? You know, I used to tell my sons this when they're young. Would you like a long life? Um, then keep the commandments. Do what's right. Would you like peace? I mean, having a long life full of conflict all the time, that wouldn't be that great a life. You want a long life with peace? Um, that's that's going to be added to you. And then it says this, do not let kindness and truth leave you. So don't get cynical, don't get critical, let kindness and truth dominate you, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, just it becomes part of your apparel, just like we saw before. Verse 4, catch this, so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God. You want God to think very highly of you? That'll work. And what? Man, it matters what people think. How you conduct your life is evaluated by the world, and you're trying to reach them, aren't you? So the church's testimony before the unredeemed is important, and it's very important in this area of money, which is our specific topic, and ministries that don't have a clear, open accountability on the handling and the use of finances entrusted to them, they are not the ones that you want to invest. You know, as you think about parachurch ministries, do they submit to evangelicals for financial accountability? 
That's a very common organization to submit to if you're a large, large parachurch ministry. What does it do? It just makes all of your financial dealings available to anyone who wants to look. What came in, what came out, what was your overhead, how much got to the ministry that you said it was going to go to. You know, if you won't submit to that, if this ministry you're thinking about donating to, they won't do that, don't even think about giving to There's a reason why they won't do that, okay? So you need accountability, you need openness, you need uh, clarity, you need... Uh, all of those things. Now look at verse 22. We set, sent with them our brother, whom we've often tested and found diligent in many things, but now more diligent because of his great confidence. So we have another guy. So we've got Paul, and we have Titus in verse 16, and we have another well-known and well-respected uh, brother, elder, in verse 18, and now we have this third individual spoken of in this verse. And Paul says, whom we've often tested and found diligent in many things. So perhaps because of that language, and again, we don't know who this is, but perhaps he's a deacon. Because deacons are supposed to be tested first and found faithful and unable to be called out. So maybe it's a deacon. I don't know. We don't have to know who it is. But we know that, you know, 1 Timothy 3.10 says that very clearly, that uh, these men must first also be tested. Let them serve as a deacon if they're beyond reproach. So this guy qualifies. And Paul says that this guy from 2 Corinthians 8.22 has been tested, then he's beyond reproach, uh, not able to be called out, and found diligent, earnest fervency sees that's the kind of ministry he's been doing and he's found to be doing that over time and in many things and and he was the leader in one of the churches and even and then he says this but now even more diligent he says uh, because of his great confidence in you so he's even more earnest to help with the ministry because mark this he was obviously one uh, of one mind with the rest of the leaders and so he's been serving very faithfully now you know he's he's like yeah this is really the thing we should do and so uh, paul says listen the churches want this guy to go too He's got a long history of faithfulness, and again, good standing before men, good standing before God. You serve faithfully. The Lord uses you in, in all kinds of ways to serve the church. So Paul says, you know, it's not because I asked him to come, so he came out of compulsion, and, uh, you know, not just because it was the right thing to do. He, you know, he agreed with the ministry model and whatever, but it was because he had discernment to know that the mind of God was in this matter, and this is what Paul proposed was exactly what should be done, and so he's excited about the opportunity, and then Paul sums up this group that's coming. You can just call them the Financial Steering Committee if you want to put modern vernacular on it. But if you will, it's made up of elders, make up a deacon. Verse 23 says, he says this, As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker among you. And as for the brethren, they're me the messengers of the church of glory to Christ. So Titus, listen, this is so great. And I just, I love the warmness of, of, uh, of the Apostle Paul here. He says, Titus is my partner and fellow worker. He's my partner, koinonos, uh, that's, koinonia is, is uh, fellowship, so koinonos, he's, he's a guy where there's a lot of commonality with me, and we, when you're thinking about adding elders to the church, you know, if, you're, if you want to put on staff as a senior pastor, you know, there's got to be some shared fellowship with the guys you're going to work with, and, and in the church, obviously, be a love for church ministry and her people, and, and that's what uh, you want who are serving as in, in multiple elders positions and he's, he says my fellow worker sooner goes that's where we get our word synergy so there has to be an ability to work together amongst those who are serving as elders and, and in the church it would be spiritual gifts and this is really a cool thing spiritual gifts you're working together with your spiritual gifts and and he has gifts you don't have and you have gifts that he doesn't have and that really that really works together in this great synergy this this engine works well because there's guys with multiple gifts so these are the things you look for as you multiply elders in the church and a shared passion for the church and a synergy in that work. And then the other guys he calls our brethren. So that includes a deacon and perhaps another elder. He says our brethren. And that, that word is actually used of biological brothers. So actually brothers who are in a family. But Paul uses it here to reflect this new reality for believers. You've been adopted into a family, mark this, that eclipses every other family. That's God's family. And and it's a common heritage to all believers and, and a common inheritance that all believers receive. It's a very warm term, see? And, and this, is a, this is a wonderful thing for, you know, and I'll just tell you, this is personal. Um, so I've, I've ministered now a long time away from my hometown. Um, this is the closest I've ever lived to. I mean, I'm 2,400 miles from my home. I've never been able to go back since seminary to minister there. And you know what the Lord's done? He, he has replaced brothers, uh, my brother and my sister. He's replaced my parents. My mom's with the Lord, but he's replaced my parents. He's replaced, you know, um, closeness of family with family in the church. And that shouldn't surprise me at all because the church, that family, that word, our brother, is the term for actual biological family, but he's referring to the church. And I've seen that happen in, in our own lives, in the churches where we've ministered. The Lord has brought people in. They've done such a blessing. And, you know, my brother and sister don't believe. So 
you know, having believing brothers and sisters in faith is such a blessing to me. But that's the reality of everyone, see? And, and he refers to them as brethren. And I personally think Paul probably looked at them as his actual brothers, as tight as that is. And, and Paul says of them, you know, beyond the family connection, you know, this is, this is what it looks like to be in the church. And Romans chapter 12, verse 10 is a really great illustration. Again, talking about your work controlled by the Holy Spirit as you do your, your thing in the world. It says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. There's the same kind of thing, a family kind of love. Give pref- preference to one another in honor. So in your biological family, I've said this before, no matter what happens in the backseat of the car on a vacation when you come to blows, you know, with your sister or your brother, uh, and you little ones in the family, you know how that erupts. You know, somebody gets a snack and somebody else gets a snack, somebody grabs part of their snack, and then it's like, you know, it's World War III back there. Uh, no matter what happens back there, and after you spank everybody, you know, an hour later, they're all sitting in front of the TV playing, you know, PlayStation, you know, because that's what, it, that's what happens. Because beyond everything else, you're still brother and sister. And that's precisely what Paul's talking about in Romans. He says, you know, no matter what happens in the church, you give preference to one another and you honor one another with brotherly love. No matter how you may disagree, and, you know, the church is the most diverse group on the planet because the Lord pulls people to faith from all walks of life and people you'd never be friends with, you wouldn't have even associated with them. You are brothers and sisters with them, and that's how you're supposed to act, to give honor and preference, see? It means you forgive and you reconcile, and mark this, you put your preferences in a different order, okay? So, and then Hebrews 13, 1, this is very great. Let the love of the brethren, what does it say? Continue, which implies that, it's already rolling, all right? So don't let, it, don't let it get held up by anything that might be some difference between you, see? So he says that these, these are his brethren, and then he says they're messengers of the church. That's the noun apostoloi. It, it, very simply, it's the word for messenger, someone who takes a message or sent with a message. In, in the first sense, it applies to the apostles, obviously. In, in Revelation, it applies to those who lead the churches. It, so, but it also applies to everybody, see, you know, people who aren't apostles. And in a very general sense, it applies to every leader, and it applies to people who bring the gospel to people. They're, they're apostoloi. But here they are, these guys, they're sent or they're endorsed by the churches of Macedonia for a specific task. So they're a messenger for this task, and that's to handle the offering. So he says, listen, these guys are, are the partners, they're fellow workers, they're our brethren, they are messengers of the church. I mean, you couldn't be any warmer and more affectionate and, and more uh, committed to what they're doing. They're picked to do this job, and their reputation, and their integrity, and, and their qualifications, and the job they do, at least verse 23 says, is a glory to Christ. You know, and I, and I think about that as, you, as, you, as we live our life as a believer, you know, how would you like that as an epitaph? He lived his life for the glory of Christ. Because can I tell you, beloved, not every believer is going to have that as their epitaph, okay? Because you have to live a certain way if you want your epitaph to be for the glory of Christ. You know, in, when I do funerals, I don't always say, I'm sure he heard or she heard, well done, my beloved uh, faithful servant. Because guess what? I knew them, and that wasn't in their mind. And they didn't hear that. They got in, as I understand it, with their robe of righteousness, and after it was purged with fire, nothing else remained. So it doesn't always end up to the glory of Christ, but it can. You know how it can? You read what you read in the Word of God on a regular basis, and you begin to conform to the image of a reprint of the Son of God. On a daily basis, over the long term, sanctification changes you from a fleshly, self-centered narcissist into somebody who gives their life away faithfully over time. And when you do that, guess what? At the end of your life, it is to the glory of Christ. That's what it's going to look like, okay? And, and as we see you know, earlier in First Corinthians, if it doesn't look that great in the first half of the movie... And you're like, oh, man, if everybody watches this, it's going to be really bad. Okay. Like watching Dune, you know. It's like, oh, my goodness. When will this be over? Make the second half, however long the Lord has given you, for the glory of Christ. Paul wanted this whole endeavor to be for the glory of Christ. But that's a much broader application. We know that we desire that as our epitaph, right? You want somebody to say his reputation, his integrity, and his qualifications and the job he does is a glory to Christ. You want somebody to say the faithfulness she brought and the fervency and the hard attitude that she had and the forgiveness and the kindness and all that is a glory to Christ. And that's not an automatic eulogy. And this isn't one of those modern contests where everybody gets a ribbon, okay, or in this case a crown. 
to the glory of Christ. It's the highest honor a believer can receive, isn't it? And what more can be said than their lives and their work are a glory to Christ? And here, reputation, integrity, testimony in this area of finance, they're a glory to Christ. And that's the caliber of men that are to be in charge of things like this. See, measured by their qualifications from 1 Timothy and Titus and their continued faithfulness and virtue and their obedience to the word of God. And then our last verse for today, we're gonna close. The end of chapter eight, verse 24. Therefore, he says, Openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. And that's principle 17. And it closes up our chapter 8. Here it is. In the management of New Testament giving, in the process of taking it up and the handling of it, is all a testimony of our love. Our love is measured by our generosity. And Paul says, we've put in place all the safeguards. We've given you all the instructions that you need. You know the attitude that you need. You know the faithfulness that needs to be brought to bear as you do it. And you've seen the example. So then what? Give. Right? You know, Paul says, you know, we can talk about it all we want. And we can say that we love. But it's all meaningless until we put it on display in front of everyone who's watching. And now we're just going to bring it right into Brian's front yard. Here it is. When you give to build the church in the Amazon basin with Eli and Jess, they don't doubt your love. Did you know that? There's no question in their mind that you love them. When you give sacrificially, we supply the needs that they have, and they can go about ministering. And the people that come to faith, they'll know it. They'll know your love. It's happened many times to missionaries over the years when people come to faith. How could you even come here? You left everything, your own home. And how did you, how did you set up here and do all this? And they just say, well, you know, our church... Our church wanted to see the gospel spread. And they're like, how could you love us? You didn't even know us. That's a common testimony. And you know what? You give to, to care for and give the gospel to refugees through the work of Bernie and Sher uh, Sherry. Uh, they don't doubt your love. And when, they, when Bernie and Sherry give them a, a piece of bread and they give them a, you know, a ride to the doctor or whatever, and they witness to them and they learn their language and they're administering to refugees there. When people come to faith, they know that you love them. Bernie and Sherry know when you give faithfully and they make it happen, see. You know, and when you give to the of those who, you know, who are having hard times inside the church or outside, and you meet those needs and you tell them about the love of the Savior, you know, they don't doubt your love. Did you know people in here in this church who have need and we meet, meet that need because you give, they don't doubt you love them. They know you love them. We've, get, we've received so many thank you cards from people inside the church who are having a temporary hard time. The church met their need in a car or a, or a paid electric bill or whatever it was. They know that we love them. They know because we acted on it. We can talk about it all we want, but when you act on it, they know. And, you know, and when you give to Gideon's and you, you can plant another 10,000 Bibles, the people you've never met will open them up in a hotel room and read it and come to faith. They know you love them, and you've seen the videos. And people are like, whoever put this Bible here, they saved my life. Right? They know you love them, see? And when you give and we can, you know, expand the ministry of the church and, and people are uh, discipled and they're nurtured and they're loved and they're plugged into ministry, and, and you've done that this year, just made sure everything was covered and we were able to do those kind of things. You know, people don't forget that. They know that you love. And love acts by giving. And Paul really ends the chapter just like it began. In, in 2 Corinthians 8.1, he says this, Brethren, I want to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia because they begged us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. And then verse 24, therefore, just like the example that we started with, just like you see them doing, the reason why they're here, and I'm using them as an illustration, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and our reason for boasting about you. Do exactly what you saw them do, see? And when the love of God's been distributed in your heart, beloved, and you have, you have been blessed by the generosity of him to you, You've experienced the love of the Spirit. It's distributed to others through you, okay? God isn't dripping it into you in a metered amount. He's pouring it into you, and that's how you do it, see? So show that the salvation you claim is certain because love's a trademark of all true believers and nothing reveals love more clearly than when you give away a thing that you perhaps loved the most. Let's be dismissed in a word of prayer, and we'll be uh, on to our Week. Father, we thank you today for an opportunity to meet together again. We thank you for the church, and we thank you for the sweetness of our fellowship. We thank you for the clarity of your word and, and how we can discern its intent And because you give us your Holy Spirit. I pray that you'll continue to conform us all the more to the image of your Son. 
the image of the, the generosity and uh, the way that he made him impoverished himself for our benefit that we might be rich. And Lord, I pray that um, you will help us to see the things you want us to see, not hold on to uh, well-established but faulty reasoning. And we don't have rights when it relates to the church. We have the right to be sacrificial and to love. And I pray that that will be the case for us. And Father, I pray that uh, as we leave this place, being conformed more to the image of your Son, that then we'll take the job we have to do, the Great Commission, and give out the gospel that people may know the love of Christ through our own generosity and hospitality. They may know that we uh, love him and serve him by our own actions and how they evaluate how we do our lives and the kindness and uh, the self-sacrifice we bring to and the graciousness we bring to our interactions that they might come to faith, Father. I pray that many will. Our church will be transformed by the new believers coming in, that we might grow in such a way that's pleasing to you. We say all this in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his sake, and all God's people said, amen.